Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is Friday, July 16th, and it is our 95th episode, and today we'll be discussing an article entitled Life of the Party by Orville Schell, discussing how secure is the Chinese uh, Communist Party, and this is the third in our three-episode series of China Week. We started the week by watching American Factory, and then we looked at a article in Foreign Affairs by Yan Shuitong, a Chinese scholar at Tsinghua University, and we're concluding with this literature review of three books by Orville Schell. How are you this morning? You're muted. I'm doing well. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in Colorado, and I'm looking forward to the, the third uh, uh, episode here, uh, the third uh, piece of information that we're going to be looking at. Uh, although it's three books, I think that this is a different view than what we saw on Monday and Wednesday in, in our Sons of Sequoia podcast here. And I'm looking forward to this because, again, I want to say uh, congratulations and, and a shout, to, shout out to Foreign Affairs for showing all sides of the issue. Uh, and so all different sides from China, from from uh, from uh, uh, from the United States, uh, from different countries. And so just all different views. And I think, uh, well, like, you know, David, we always say, I keep on talking about listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying, but understand all the voices, understand all of them before you come to a decision on, on how you want to move forward. And I think this is a very good a good uh, uh, introduction, a very good treatment of another view uh, from what we saw on Wednesday and even what we saw on Monday. And I think it's excellent. And my shout out to, to Foreign Affairs by hearing all voices. Yes, I think that Foreign Affairs does a good job of, I mean, during the Trump administration, there was so much um, animosity towards the policies of the administration, but they did a great job of getting policy officials from the administration to come in and justify their actions in the pages of foreign affairs and said, we did this for this purpose. We did this for that purpose. And there's a lot of noise and not a lot of signal. Like, let me as a functionary give you the signal. This is what we're doing. Yes. I mean, this message may have been undermined by this tweet that everyone got outraged about, but look at what we're doing, and we're doing it for a reason. And I think they've done this with their examination of China as well. They brought on two Chinese scholars. We, we looked at one of them. And then Orville Shell, you were telling me, he's a, we can take a look real quick at his brief bio. Um, he's the Arthur Ross Director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society and the author of the novel, My Old Home. That doesn't tell us much. Do you want to give us a little bit of background from your research on Orville Schell? Well, I don't know him that well, but just what what uh, is out there, what's public, is it, he's really uh, educated in journalism. Uh, he has been uh, active in learning and writing about China for decades. Uh, and he's written books, he's co-authored books. Uh, when you read, this article, read his review, his book reviews, you can tell he's extremely educated, he's very articulate, uh, and he has a view that he's promoting. And I think it's one view, uh, but I think it's a very good view, and it's a view that should be uh, looked at along with others. Mm -hmm. uh, he is educated in the United States. Uh, he 
also uh, was uh, in Taiwan. Uh, he did. He did. Uh, he was educated also uh, in Asia and worked in Asia. So he knows a lot about the Asian and also China, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Asian theater in China. And so he, he's a journalist. He's a journalist educated, but also he writes very well. But he's very knowledgeable about Asia and the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, okay. And um, so in this book review that we're going to read today by Orville Schell, he's reviewing three books. Uh, one is The Chinese Communist Party, A Century in Ten Lives, edited by Timothy Cheek, Klaus Mulhan, and Hans von Venn. Um, China's Leaders from Mao to Now by David Shambaugh. And The Party and the People, Chinese Politics in the 21st Century by Bruce J. Dixon. So those are the three books that he's reviewing in his article. And I think that it's it's a little bit of a cheater way to sort of understand these three books just by reading Orville Schell's review. But I think that after reading Orville Schell's review, we'll know more about these three books than the majority of people in the world because the majority of people in the world aren't going to read these books, right? I, I believe he puts a spin on it. Mm -hmm. uh, he may not agree with that, but I think he does. But if you notice, uh, one's from Cambridge, one's Polity, and the other's from Princeton. So uh, he pulls books from different places. Yes. And I think I think that's another issue, too. But he does have a theme as he goes through there. There is a thematic type of, of a journalistic approach that he takes uh, in his reviews. Uh, so I think he uses it to to promote uh, certain types of uh, uh, uh general ideas about about China and the and the direction and uh probably is not that wrong uh but I'm sure there's other views too yes but I think I think we should look at his view and just see what he says because he's very he's very knowledgeable about this area yes we'll get into it but I'd like to say that on this third installment of our China week on Monday we did American Factory which was a documentary about a factory that moved to Dayton Ohio that was run by Fu Yao the Chinese uh, automobile glass firm. And that documentary did a great job of showing the perspective of American workers, American executives, Chinese workers, Chinese executives, and how there was a culture clash, how there was a different in style in the manufacturing industry, and how American ideas of productivity and workers' rights differ from Chinese ideas of productivity and workers' rights. So that was a fascinating case study, I believe. And then on Wednesday, we had read Yan Shuetong's article, Becoming Strong in Foreign Affairs. That was a fascinating study of someone working at Tsinghua University who is a Chinese individual who's employed by a Chinese university, sort of speaking from a Chinese viewpoint about Chinese ideas about foreign policy. And then this final installment of China Week, we're looking at a literature review of three books written by, if we look at their names we can assume that they're Westerners, correct? Correct. Dixon, Shambaugh, Cheek, Mulhan, and Van Den. Those are the authors, and then Orville Schell, written by Westerners about the Chinese Communist Party. So we're taking a different perspective now, uh, a Western perspective, not about China itself, but about the party, which will celebrate its 100th anniversary a week from today. So... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party will become 100 years old on July 23rd, and I think that's a good reason to do China Week, and it's a good reason to do an episode about Western perspectives on the co Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, along with Chinese perspectives. Yes, well, from Wednesday. I don't think there's... From Wednesday. 
And I want to bury the lead a little bit, but one reason I chose this article a lot is because he said something that I feel strongly, and this might be my American bias, my Bill of Rights bias, my (laughs) freedom of speech bias. And there's one part in this article that resonated with me, and it's, if your country's so strong, why are you shutting down people that are trying to speak out against it? Why are you so afraid of these people? I think that's really a good point. I don't know. I like that point. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I saw that, right? He said that at the beginning, at the second or third paragraph, mm-hmm. uh, he says that. And uh, it's a very good point. And a very I, good point. And that, when we get to that, we'll probably emphasize that again, because it's a good point. Yes. It's, it's, it's something to think about. Yeah. Okay, so shall we get into it? Sure. Oh. By the way, uh, before we get into it, Dave, I was going to say I read this, and uh, I had to have my dictionary. Uh, I'm not a literary person or, or you know, and uh, uh, he uses a lot of uh, words that I didn't know. Uh, so he, he's very, uh, uh, what's the word? He's literary. He knows a lot of words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if I read part of this and I mispronounce them, I'm sorry. I apologize beforehand. So let's get into it. Okay. Life of the Party. How secure is the Chinese Communist Party by Orville Shell? And it's a review of these three books, which we already enumerated, so let's just get right into the body of the article. Here we go. July 23rd marks the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, which was founded in Shanghai in 1921. The first party Congress was attended by, among others, a 27-year-old Mao Zedong, who had made an arduous journey from his homeland in inland Hunan province. This summer, China will hold an epic celebration to honor the occasion. Although the party will forego a military parade in Tiananmen Square, lest it appear too militaristic, the jingoistic Global Times explained that large-scale exhibitions will be held to display the glorious course, great achievements, and valuable experience of the CCP over the last 100 years. There will be a celebratory publication, seminars, commemorative stamps, and coins, medals for outstanding party members, and a special hotline set up so that patriotic citizens can report any historical nihilists, miscreants who might deign to deny the excellence of advanced socialist culture. Xi Jinping, China's president and the general secretary of the CCP, has, in rhetoric that would have pleased Mao, exhorted the party's 90 million members to vigorously carry forward the red tradition. Meanwhile, propaganda organs are bombarding the public with wordy slogans. Adhere to Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, and the important idea of three represents the scientific view of development and Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era as a guide. That is a slogan. Uh, I'm just editorializing now. That's a slogan. Let's just go through that slogan again. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Here's the slogan for the uh, celebration. Adhere to Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, Deng Xiaoping theory, the important idea of three represents the scientific view of development and Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era as the guide. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really have that much of a ring to it. Yes. But hey, uh, that is their slogan. Okay. That's right. And they mean it, too. <laughs> they mean it. So, okay, continuing on. Although such language is familiar to older Chinese who lived through the Mao era, many others are left wondering how such retrograde big leader culture fits into a modern globalized world, especially one in which an autotra- uh, autocratic Latter-day People's Republic continues to astound analysts with an economic growth rate, growth rate of 18% in the first quarter of 2021. After all, didn't Western theorists once insist that a growing economy was the companion to 
ineluctable democratic development? Those of us who have long watched China's progress. I first joined the China-watching fraternity at Harvard in the early 1960s as a student of John Fairbank and Benjamin Schwartz. Now find ourselves entering an era hauntingly reminiscent of that earlier one when Americas were shut out of red China, left to make sense of Mao's tectonic revolution through Chinese newspapers, and by peering through knotholes from Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. Now, after several decades of hopeful engagement, Beijing's wolf warrior diplomacy is again souring relations with the United States. Chinese libraries and archives have closed their doors to scholars. The government is denying visas to foreign correspondents. Harsh crackdowns are suffocating global civil society groups, and the COVID-19 pandemic has brought cultural exchanges to a standstill. And this time, the United States is jousting with a far more successful, powerful, and threatening adversary. As the CCP marks its centennial with an avalanche of official party histories portraying China as a monolithic powerhouse, three recent books serve as reminders that Chinese communism has given rise to a surprising diversity of viewpoints and leadership styles. Although the country's leaders have all shared a commitment to one-party Leninist government, this fact masks deeper uncertainty. Despite nationalist bravado about China's rejuvenation and success at nation-building, the party's ongoing accept obsession with control reveals a lack of confidence in the system it has confected. There we go. That's what I was talking about. There it is. There it is. Yep. Which is a very good point. Mm -hmm. It's a very good point. Yes. And uh, I mean, but maybe that's just our interpretation of censorship. Censorship comes from a place of weakness. These viewpoints can't be out there because we're not strong enough to control them once they are. We think of that because we've lived in a relatively open society with freedom of speech for our whole lives. That's what we know. But they, I'm sure they see the ability to control that speech as power to make sure they, they retain that power and stay strong. Mm -hmm. They don't want anything to undermine it. So two different views. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's more than two views on what they do. Uh, but this is certainly... A very good point, and it's it's not totally wrong. Mm -hmm. Despite nationalist bravado about China's rejuvenation and success at nation building, the party's ongoing obsession with control reveals a lack of confidence in the system it has confected. But that's an American perspective. Yes. We had the Bill of Rights. We have uh, uh, free speech, uh, freedom of the press. And uh, we want open dialogue. And, of course, you could point to saying, well, yeah, you guys have it. And look how it's destabilizing your democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, look at how people just refuse to believe the truth. And that becomes an issue. Like, what if you could not allow people to lie? That's what China does. And then so more people believe the truth there. More people follow what the government says. And, mm -hmm. and there's an efficacy to that. And there is. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it cuts both ways. Everything cuts both ways. But the perspective is, is that if you allow what's happening today and we come through it, we're going to be stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, when, you, when you come through adversity, you're going to be stronger. And so, yeah, we've weathered that. Uh, they don't have, they're not going to have that to weather. They, they don't allow it. They don't, don't allow those voices to be heard. Yep. So it's two different approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, who's to say one's better than the other? Well, uh, we, 
will think uh, that America, the United States way is better because of open speech and open dialogue to understand why we believe what we believe and where we're going and everyone come together uh, rather than forcing people to come together. We want people to willingly come together. Mm-hmm. Um, so shall we continue? Mm-hmm. Do you want to read? Okay. From one, many. China's historical diversity is most evident in the volume edited by Timothy Cheek, Klaus Mulham, and Hans von de Ven, which profiles a score of figures who played important roles in the CCP's contradictory development. They include the Dutch communist po- politician Henk Snevelet, alias Maring, who helped organize the CCPs in the 1920s, and outspoken intellectual leftist Wang Shiwei, who was beheaded for his candor in 1947, and the reform-minded CCP General Secretary Chao Ziyang, who was purged in 1989 for sympathizing with student protesters. China's Leaders, by David Shambaugh, covers roughly the same broad period with five essays on Mao and his successors Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi. As Shambaugh skillfully demonstrates, Xi, meaning Xi Jinping, right? Xi marks a sharp break with these other post-Mao leaders. By ending collective rule and crowning himself as the unilateral leader, Xi has reincarnated China as a highly centralized neo-Maoist techno-autocracy. By dashing the dream of engagement, an idea founded on the premise that increased trade, scholarly exchange, civil society interaction, and diplomacy would bridge the divide between China and the United States, he has thrown U.S.-Chinese relations into a death spiral. The Party of the People, by the political scientist Bruce Dixon, drafts a helpful balance sheet of the party's strengths and weaknesses, giving readers a better understanding of how the CCP's versatility enabled it to become the longest ruling communist party in history. Although Deng's exuberant reforms did, did start to bend China's Leninist medal, under Xi's tutelage, China has begun to snap back into its old Maoist shape. What is new, as Dixon hastens to note, is that the party's legitimacy is, is quote, based not on the consent of the governed, but it's on, on its ability to modernize the country, end quote. Evident throughout these narratives of the CCP's history is the way dissident voices outside the party have repeatedly made themselves heard and shifted the party's direction. This tradition of diversity remains encoded in China's political DNA, like a recessive gene ready to express itself at any time. These shifts should prompt observers to remember that at any given time, China's posture is only as freeze frame of that moment and should never be mistaken as constant. So how should outsiders understand this endlessly morphing country that keeps surprising analysts with an extraordinary development acumen and self-wounding blindness. What Shambaugh calls the operating software of Xi's rule includes the feeling that China is constantly under siege by both internal and external enemies, a national fixation on secrecy, a desire to regulate everything, endless re-education and rectification campaigns, and an insistence that the party control the gun at all times. Above all, instead of subscribing to the view that human beings, like markets, 
are best given as much freedom as possible. The CCC contends that almost every aspect of human life may require oversight and intervention. As Dixon notes, it, quote, will not tolerate demands that will challenge its monopoly on power, end quote. The CCP's deeply rooted domestic impulse to control and constrain has a parallel expression in China's interactions with the outside world. While so-called soft power is sometimes most uh, democratic nations is, is something most democratic nations view as an independent natural byproduct of their cultural and societal activities, the CCP views it as something in need of careful management, even manufacture and manipulation. To promote China's image abroad, the CCP maintains a massive, well-funded apparatus, the United Front Work Department, which runs global propaganda campaigns on behalf of Xi's version of socialism. Beijing's international trade policy obeys similar incentives. The common wisdom among market economies is that global commerce functions best when left unrestrained, except when subject to the oversight of institutions such as the World Trade Organization. In China, however, the CCP views trade as a weapon that can be wielded to gain influence and geostrategic advantage. China's recent trade policies echo an economic strategy pursued by Germany before World War II. In 1941, the economist Albert Hirschman described Berlin as neither a free trader nor protectionist, but a power trader. As the economist Robert Atkinson has more recently written, Hitler's Germany used global commerce, quote, as a key tool to gain commercial and military advantage over its adversaries, end quote, turning foreign trade into an instrument of power, of pressure, and even of conquest to, quote, degrade its adversaries' economies, even if that imposed cost on its own economy, end quote. Today, argues Atkinson, China has become just such a power trader, seeking to make itself such an important market for the export of raw materials that it turns others, quote, into dependent vassal states, worried that China could cut off their exports at any time, end quote. Let me editorialize here. That's what I was talking about on Wednesday about commodities. When you have your commodities uh, uh, controlled, you're beginning to control the downstream supply chain. Let's continue on. Beijing has already demonstrated its propensity to be a retaliatory and punitive trade partner. It cut Norwegian salmon, salmon exports after the dissident Liu uh, Xiaobo won the Nobel Peace Prize, closed down stores run by the South Korean chain lot, halted tourism, stopped K-pop exchanges after Seoul accepted a U.S. missile defense system, embargoed Canadian exports when the chief financial officer of the Chinese telecommunication current Huawei was arrested in Vancouver, slapped tariffs on Australian wine, cotton, and barley exports when Canberra urged uh, the World Health Organization to study the Chinese origins of COVID-19 pandemic and sanctioned a Berlin-based think tank and members of the European Parliament after they criticized China's treatment of its uh, Uyghur, Uyghur population. By Atkinson's account, China is not just another trade seeker, larger trader, seeking larger markets and more profit, but an authoritarian power set on mobilizing itself to become a global hegemon. As Xi himself has proclaimed, 
quote, our responsibility is to unite, to work for the realization, the great revival of the China, uh, to work for realizing the great revival of the Chinese nation in order to let the Chinese nation stand more firmly and powerfully among all nations around the world, end quote. If Atkinson is right, the world confronts not only a formidable new, new, formidable new trading, technological, industrial, economic, and military power, but also a state willing to deploy all these forces to, to make the world a safer place for its form of autocrat, uh, autocracy. So what do you think of that, David? Um, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting view. The power trader... Um, I think you have to be careful when anyone compares anything to Nazi Germany. <laughs> Alarm really bells should go off. But I think that drawing historical parallels to their trading uh, rationale is interesting. It's not like, I mean, you could call what they're doing in Xinjiang with the Uyghur population concentration camps. But to say, no, they're using trade as a weapon like Germany, pre-World War II Germany did. That's fascinating to me just because it's a perspective that I haven't really heard advanced in other places. It's not that they believe in open markets. It's not that they believe totally in protectionism. It's that they're sort of deploying whatever suits their needs at the moment to sort of dominate in corner markets. And I, I, I think that it's easy to blame China for doing something like that when you see it happening and they're playing their advantage. Now, you can take a look at the United States and something like the vaccine. We've cornered the market on the vaccine. <laughs> and we have 70% of our population, and we've promised to give vaccines to other nations. But so far to date, I don't know, this may not be, but as of a month ago, we'd given 4 million doses of AstraZeneca to Canada and Mexico. That's the one that we haven't even approved yet. We haven't given any of the Pfizer or the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson, the ones that are being used here. So it kind of seems like, of course, this is different because you're talking about a global pandemic, but we're sort of playing favorites with how we trade as well. Right? Uh, I got to be careful. I can't speak out of turn. Uh, there's probably a lot more to it than just that. That's, yeah, that's, like, that's, 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 simple. that's a, a simple example, and they're using this as grand strategy. And they're using it to dominate commodities markets or to, you know, make raw, like it said, make raw materials. And you were talking about this. Um, mm -hmm. Make raw materials so, I'm trying to find. It's, it's, I, it's uh, the last sentence of like uh, three paragraphs back, right above trade partner. Um. Last paragraph, second, yes, third yes. to last okay, paragraph. You got it, you got it. So today, China has become such a, seeking to make it, yeah, seeking to make itself such an important market for the export of raw materials that it turns others into dependent vassal states, worried that China could cut them off at any time. That's, it's fascinating. You know, if, and that's the thing about having one buyer, a monopsony, right? We've learned that word. A monopsony. That's true. That's true. But uh, along those lines, well, it's, it's very true. I mean, it's really a good strategy. Uh, and again, 
Well, going back to, to the World War II and Hitler, you're right. You've got to be really careful drawing in these analogies because mm -hmm. when you draw analogies, they're only good on a very small portion. You can't expand that, and people will naturally expand that beyond uh, what the analogy was meant to communicate. Yeah, the analogy and, is uh, trade strategy. It's not yeah. every aspect of the regime. Not every aspect of the military regime mm -hmm. and everything. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, as far as the uh, raw materials, that it turns others into dependent vassal states. Uh, but that concept is is as old as history, is, is uh, the best way to bring down, and we've seen that in, in history, in centuries and centuries and centuries of warfare, the best way to bring down the biggest military machine is cut off their supply chain. Yes. And so it's just it's just logical, it's just very logical, and so the danger, which I will go on the limb here to say, with the United States, is when we become powerful in the downstream markets, and we can we want to lower our cost, and so we have a, a single uh, a supplier that's cheap, like China, well our supply risk just goes up, mm -hmm. and we're giving power. When we have a single supplier, we're giving power to that supplier. And when that supplier is in another country, we're giving them a lot more power uh, than than we think. And so we're taking our power and undermining it and giving it to them uh, if you don't have uh, multiple suppliers. And also uh, looking at uh, mitigating factors uh, within a pandemic or with political uh, upheaval or economic uh, change. Or social changes, you you got to be thinking of that. And mm -hmm. I think, and I think actually Biden has looked into uh, shoring up a a, uh, a more secure uh, supply chain for the economics in in our in different industries. Uh, and I think he's right. We need to start thinking about when you think of security, you got to think of security not just in many different uh, avenues, and one is going to be the supply chain of what you need to run your country. Mm -hmm. And that's not just the raw material. That's also energy, uh, people, uh, information, and even cybersecurity. Okay, we're getting off the track here. Well, yeah, but anyway, but, but I think what you're saying is, what you're saying is China's strategy, we have to adopt part of that. I mean, they're sort of dominating certain industries because they know that it'll give them power. And we're sort of adopting a free market approach where we seed those industries because that's low margin goods. So why not have them all produced in China? But then when you need personal protective equipment and you don't have any personal protective equipment plants in the United States, why not? Because it's not a high margin manufacturing process. So it's all in China. And then they gouge you or they you know hold your feet to the fire. And it's like, well, whose fault is that? Is it their fault or is it our fault for not realizing that when you need it, you need it and you can't be dependent on someone else? I mean, I think that those questions are important to ask. I, I agree. I agree. And I think, uh, okay, I'll just say that the that perspective and that approach mm -hmm. uh, from the CCP or from China uh, is it's as old as time, but it works. And when you have someone like the United States who will allow it to work, then why don't they use it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> why wouldn't they use it? You know. And so uh, I, I think when we rec, I think it's again working together, understanding how they think, and that's exactly what. What uh, uh, he's talking about here is that's what they're doing. 
That's how they thought. But then why should we be surprised? Uh, you can see that in, in almost every uh, successful campaign uh, that they just control your supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's like so Jeff, anyway, it's like well Jeff said. Bezos says, you can complain about what they're doing, but complaining is not a strategy. That's I, right. I like that quote. Um, Do let's, something about it. Let's move on. Beijing's dialectic. So we're talking about Hegelian dialectics. The German philosopher Hegel believed that history had an inexorable forward motion. Karl Marx borrowed this idea, concluding that history would inevitably lead to world socialism. Indeed, many other Western thinkers have fallen in thrall to a similar teleology, believing that history was inescapably moving towards greater freedom and democracy. Martin Luther King Jr. famously proclaimed that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. U.S. President Ronald Reagan told the British Parliament that Marxism and Leninism was destined for the ash heap of history. President Bill Clinton made numerous reference to autocratic countries, usually China, as being on the wrong side of history. President Barack Obama predicted victory in the war on terrorism because we are on the right side of history. He even had a rug made for the Oval Office with the King quote woven into it. But did these idealistic Americans misidentify history's direction? Does history even have a direction? With the United States awash in racial protests and mass shootings, with right-wing populists storming the U.S. Capitol, and with American conservatives refusing COVID-19 vaccinations in the name of liberty, might history end up favoring Xi's form of dynamic Leninist capitalism instead of freedom and democracy? The authors of these three centennial volumes claim no clairvoyance about history's intention. Some of the figures they write about, however, give reason to believe that even if history lacks direction, it still brings change rather than constancy. Their profiles show that communist China's odyssey has been riven by conflicting forces, clashing ideologies, competing factions, and colliding visions. Although the one-party system Stalin bequeathed to Beijing has remained essentially unchanged since 1921, the lives described in these three books have nonetheless helped Chinese politics swing between opposing poles ever since the end of the old imperial system. It is precisely this ever-fluctuating and unresolved state that renders Beijing so unpredictable. Today, China's tight social controls, impressive infrastructure, dynamic economy, and modernizing military may lend the appearance of a well-ordered, confident, and invincible nation united around an unchallengeable leader and a unified party. Its successes should not be dismissed. But when one factors in the party's history of fratricidal struggle, fixation on control, obsession with ceremony, and mania for propaganda, a different picture emerges. Of a system so uncertain and lacking in self-confidence that its leaders need to maintain an expensive simulacrum of national greatness to believe in their true prowess. Whatever history's goal, its deterministic end state is unlikely to be the kind of insecure neo-Maoist techno-autocracy that needs state control and wolf warrior diplomacy to assert its greatness. Such a rigidly controlled, brittle, and belligerent system contravenes one of the most powerful of modern human urges, to enjoy as much liberty and freedom as possible within the constraints of any given societal context. It is hard to imagine Xi's version of the CCP ever becoming comfortable enough with either itself or its restless people to allow Chinese citizens a meaningful quotient of political liberty and freedom. Major challenges, moreover, have repeatedly ruptured communist China's well-manicured surface to expose a molten core beneath. The recent essays in these pages by Kai Xia, a former Central Party school professor, is but one example. 
She was no reformer, she bluntly wrote. Over the course of his tenure, the regime has degenerated further into political oligarchy bent on holding on to power through brutality and ruthlessness. It has grown even more repressive and dictatorial. After breaking with the CCP, Kai was hounded into exile. There are rapier-like missives of the Tsinghua University. Then there are rapier-like missives of the Tsinghua University law professor Xu Shangrun, who criticized Xi for mishandling of the COVID-19 outbreak and for reviving Mao's rule by personality cult. Enough the moldy campaigns of deification and per personality cult, he cried out. Enough the monstrous lies and endless sufferings. Enough the blood-sucking red dynasty and greedy party state. Enough the absurd policies and practices in trying to put the clock back over the past seven years. Enough the mountains of bodies and seas of blood resulting from the red tyranny over the past 70 years. Shu was summarily cashiered from his university position. Not particularly surprising. That's my editorial comment. Moving on. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> this spring, even former pr premier Wen Jiabao spoke out, marking the death of his mother in the obscure Macau Herald by describing his father's prosecution during the Cultural Revolution. He was often subjected to barbaric interrogation and beatings, wrote Wen. In my mind, China should be a country full of fairness and justice. There should always be respect for the will of the people, humanity, and the nature of human beings. His oblique critique was quickly taken offline by the censors. And we're back. And we're back. I, You know, when I listen to this, I step back and I think, you know, it's like a pendulum. It's like a pendulum going back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. And so when one nation gets strong, it leaves a vacuum over here where other people rush in. And then when that one becomes strong, it leaves a vacuum over here where another nations rush in. When that becomes strong, it leaves a vacuum. It goes back and forth. Why? Because one thing doesn't change, and that's people. Mm -hmm. Humans don't change. Yes, you can have different type of political structures. You can have the China approach, the United States approach, the European approach, the South American approach. You can have all different approaches. But when one becomes strong, it's going to leave, it's a pendulum, it leaves vacuum. Other people will rush in and they keep going back and forth. And that's why we have nations rise and we have nations fall. And I think that uh, where's the power? Uh, well, from the United States, the power is in the people. The people are powerful and they, when, when it starts degrading, people will come to the table and say, no, we, we don't want that. When you have a whole nation of people moving in a direction, uh, and that's that's everybody in the nation, then it's kind of hard not to stop them. It's hard to stop them from what they're doing. Uh, or what the CCP is doing is from a party, controlling the people. As long as the people follow the party, you're fine. Uh, so you have these different power struggle, struggles uh, as old as time, and it's always been that way. That's what I'm thinking about this. I'm so, that, maybe that's an editorial comment about this pendulum going back and forth. Mm -hmm. I think I've heard that before. And that's what I'm hearing. That, that's what it seems like here. And you could say, oh, yeah, look what the Communist Party is doing. But then you can do the same thing. Look what we've done, too. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you can always sort of look inward and sort of see the faults of others in yourself. This section, I of course, 
the open criticism causing people to stuff to get censored or people to lose their jobs, that's not a surprise. We discussed that on Wednesday when we said, right. okay, should you really respect anything a Chinese scholar has to say since there's a broad swath of things they can't say? And I think the answer is yes, but you have to accept it with the caveat that they're not allowed to be critical of the regime. So that doesn't mean that what they're saying is wrong, but there's areas where they can't go. So that was interesting. Also, I was reminded a little bit of a documentary that we watched that we have not covered on the podcast yet called Capitalism in the 21st Century. Do you remember this documentary? And they did an experiment where they had college students play Monopoly. And they gave one of the players double the money and two dice to roll. And the other player started with half the money and they could only roll one die at a time. Now, it was only a matter of time before the player that started with more money and had two dice started lecturing the player that was losing on how they were irresponsible with their money and how they have to mortgage their properties. And they sort of thought that just because they were given a leg up, that they were, they were superior to their opponent, even though it was obvious that they were given more opportunities than their opponent. And it was sort of an object lesson in the haves start with more, and yet they think that they can lecture the have-nots and, and what they have. But I think that another le- lesson that you can draw out of that experiment is don't let prosperity be uh, uh, incontrovertible evidence of the primacy of your ideas. So Xi Jinping says, look at this. Maoism, and then Deng Xiaoping's reforms, and then my, look at how well our economy is doing. Therefore, our ideas must be right. And I think that you could make that argument with America as well. We thought if we bring people's economies along, if we bring China's economy along, if we allow them to join the WTO, if we allow them to participate in the world economy and have open and free trade, their prosperity will lead to them adopting democracy because the two go hand in hand. But I think what's interesting is we just only thought that because uh, we and the other Western democracies were the wealthy countries and we assumed they went hand in hand. But that there's no nothing in the rule book that says that they have to go hand in hand. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I do. And I agree. Uh, I think you have said so many times where you stand depends on where you sit. And, uh, and I think it's similar to what you're saying that, you know, when you're a wealthy nation, you think everyone should do what you've done because just like you have two dice and you have all the money. Mm-hmm. But when you have one dice and half the money, you have a different thought process. You have a different approach. You know, you're not going to do it the same way because you have different constraints uh, on your system. I, I think that's a very, very good uh, analogy, David. Mm-hmm. I like that because that's that's kind of true. Again, uh, people are uh, one thing that doesn't change over history is people, and uh, and the people's behavior is quite predictable. Uh, you know, when they get power, uh, their behavior is predictable, and when they don't have power, they're predictable, and it's just uh, uh, that will translate into nations and into nations and foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think to be a good, a good political science and foreign relations person, you have to have a really strong communications and interpersonal communications, but also uh, psychology 
uh, of how people think and how people react to, to information. Yeah. Um, shall we continue? Sure. And I'll, I'm going to run out real quick, but you won't hear me. I'll mute myself, but you can read. Okay. I'll, I'll be back in a few minutes. Okay. Its own worst enemy. The continual reappearance of such discordant voices throughout China's communist history hints that political control, economic growth, and infrastructure alone do not necessarily make a durable nation. What is missing? Those things that lie within the realm of what the economist Adam Smith dubbed moral sentiments, it's here that China's stunning century of progress remains most underdeveloped, incomplete, and vulnerable. As some of the figures profiled in the Chinese Communist Party show, China does have a long historical tradition of humanism and reform, which the party has now silenced. As she re recently warned, all the work by the party's media must reflect the party's will, safeguard the party's authority, and safeguard the party's unity. They must love the party, protect the party, and closely align themselves with the party leadership in thought, politics, and action. Although Chambeau observes that Xi Jinping has unleashed a, a sustained reign of repression and comprehensive controls on China, not seen since the Maoist era, Dixon urges observers not to let Beijing's repression cloud the ways in which the party has been responsive. There is no question that the CCP uses regression against its perceived enemies, he admits, but he notes it also uses other tools to create popular support, rising prosperity, national pride, even responsiveness to public opinion to varying degrees. The editors of the Chinese Communist Party, for their part, uh, counsel that because the party is dangerous to provoke, Others must do everything possible to keep China from becoming an implacable, implacable enemy. That may be true, but unless such efforts are reciprocal, they have little prospect of success. These scholarly books leave the reader with respect for China's material progress, but also a deep sense of alarm over the confrontational authoritarian gear into which Xi has now shifted his country. His imperial, imperial reign raises a question that hovers over each of these works. Can China continue to co cohere and uh, progress without a humanistic moral, moral core? Lacking that crucial ingredient, China has become a giant social science experiment. Perhaps the CCP has managed to perfect an entirely new model of development that does not require such quaint values as freedom, justice, and liberty. But modern history suggests that the absence of these elements can imperil a country. Think of fascist Italy and Germany and imperial Japan, Francoist Spain, theocratic Iran and the Soviet Union. Yet even though it lacks such humanistic niceties, the CCP is now celebrating its centennial anniversary. Might the Chinese just be different from everyone else, especially those in the West? Perhaps. Some say Chinese citizens will will prove content to gain wealth and power alone without these aspects of life that other societies have commonly considered fundamental to being human, such as such an assumption seems unrealistic, not to say patronizing. In the end, the Chinese people will likely prove little different in their yearnings from Canadians, Czechs, Japanese or Koreans.
Just because those outside China cannot see or hear a more fulsome expression of universal values right now does not mean that such desires do not exist. Stilled for the moment, they have appeared again and again in the past and are bound to reappear in the future. The end. He goes back to the people. <laughs> I'm back. You're, yep. you're muted. Yep, I'm unmuted now. Yep. Um, and that's Orville Scher. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Orville Schell. Uh, and uh, it was very well written and interesting ideas, mm -hmm. a different viewpoint. Different and viewpoint. A, a good review of the three books and a very critical viewpoint of China, uh, especially in that middle section where I read the Xinhua University professor, the lady that was in these pages, Kai Xia or whatever, that was a former CCP. There's disillusionment and um, we didn't cover this article, but I read all the China essays and it's the immediate the article that immediately preceded called the Taiwan Temptation. Um, we didn't read this article, but I want to point out that in official Chinese publications, they've sort of outlined ways in which they could bring Taiwan back into the fold, a military invasion. And it said in that article, there's no contingency plan for holding Taiwan. And they said the reason why that may not be in the publications, in the Chinese military publications, is because they're so good at repressing dissent among their citizenry that they don't consider that a challenge. And I think that's fascinating. So once China comes back into the fold and Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan comes back into the fold and Taiwan is just part of China uh, flat out and there's military control and the Chinese People's Liberation Army is there, they'll be able to repress Taiwanese dissent. I think that there's this sort of idea that they're good at that. They can do that. But the question is for how long, right? Again, the pendulum will swing, start swinging. Because mm -hmm. people, it's a big country, it's a big world. There's a lot of countries in the world and people can see all the different countries, you know, mm -hmm. especially today, especially yeah. today. And uh, we have a lot of Chinese people in, in uh, being educated in America. And we have Americans going to China uh, or has been has been in China. Mm -hmm. And uh, Orville, he, he went to China. He went to Taiwan. So so the, we, we learn from other people. Yes. You can see you can see other other people's uh, systems. So a hundred years, the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm sure that a hundred years from now, it'll still be around. The question is, will China still be a one party state in 100 years? Well, I, I wouldn't say that for sure CCP will be around another hundred years. There'll be something around. <laughs> There'll be something here. You can call it CCP. It may be very different. But the point is, there's. I mean, but the thing is, there's still there's still Nazis. You know. Oh, I see what you mean. I yeah. mean, it won't right. be the same thing, but it'll probably still be around. It's. That's true. That's true. We still have Nazis. Uh, we. It's just uh, actually again. I, some people, uh, they had power back in uh, in Germany mm -hmm. in the 40s, and then they lost it. Uh, but that doesn't mean they went away. They're still there. Yeah, there's still people uh, that fly the Confederate flag here right. in America. And that was 150 years ago that, you know, the South, they got punished. 
in the United States Civil War, mm-hmm. where the North the North won, the South lost, but then there's people in the South still fly the Confederate flag. Mm-hmm. You're right. There's people back on January 6th at the uh, at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. There's people so, who still believe Trump is president. That's right. So mm-hmm. pe- people people will. One thing that's constant is people, and so whatever governments you change and whatever things you change, you have to recognize that uh, the people uh, are pretty much all the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, are are going to stay. Are, are go- the problems in the past are going to be the problems in the future, uh, where the people are the source. <laughs> yes, I guess what he's saying too. His his you know this conclusion, the part that you just read, is. There's a, they really discount basic human, humanistic ideals, sort of individual, I mean, individual autonomy, a sense of unity in the world, a sense of independent thought. And they try to wallpaper over that with glorious communist culture. Oh, no, don't worry about independent thought. That doesn't happen here. And it's like, but it does. You know, you have scholars, you have dissidents, you have the former head of the Chinese Communist Party saying, let me find his quote, um, that his father was often subjected to barbaric interrogation and beatings. And the former head of the Chinese Communist Party, Wen Xiaobao, said, in my mind, China should be a country full of fairness and justice. There should always be respect for the will of the people, humanity, and the nature of human beings. That... Let's read that one more time. In my read that mind, again. this is what he said. In my mind, China should be a country full of fairness and justice. There should always be respect for the will of the people, humanity, and the nature of human beings. And what was the author's line right after that quote? This critique was quickly taken offline by censors. Critique, so they see that statement. That, let me say it one more time. China should be a country full of fairness and justice. There should always be respect for the will of the people, humanity, and the nature of human beings. They see that as a critique of the way they're doing things. What does that tell you about the way they're doing things? The implication is they're not doing that. That there's not respect for the will of the people, there's not respect for humanity, and there's not respect for nature of human beings. And that's the author's conclusion, is that, yes, they've continued economic ascent. Yes, They've sort of brought people out of poverty. Yes, there is this bargain, but you can only discount what does Wen Jiabao say? Fairness, justice, respect for the will of the people, humanity, and the nature of human beings for so long until people start to realize, hey, maybe we deserve a world with fairness. Maybe we deserve a world with justice. Maybe we deserve a world with respect for the will of the people, respect for humanity, and respect for the nature of human beings. And... I think that the party has already identified that type of thinking. That's that's worthy of being censored. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, and they call it an oblique critique, mm-hmm. uh, deviating from the party line. Yeah, it, it is very interesting. And so, even though even though people may think that may think the way today, that does, as you say, that doesn't mean they'll think that way tomorrow. Uh, because because there are scholars, there are people learn. We do see people see things. People start thinking, and people start desiring uh, freedom, uh, humanity, 
they want to start seeing people being respected. People mm -hmm. start seeing that. And also, David, in the very last, he says in the like the third to the last sentence, then in that last paragraph, uh, in the end, in the middle of the paragraph, in the end, the Chinese people will likely prove little different in their yearnings from Canadians, Czechs, Japanese, or Koreans, basically all over the world. So people are people. Uh -huh. So he does, he does recognize that. Just because those outside China cannot see or hear a more fulsome expression of universal values right now does not mean that such desires do not exist. Mm -hmm. Just what you said. So it's a good way to end it. Say, yes, this is where they are. This is what they're done. This is what they're saying now. This is the direction they're going. But one, the one ingredient you cannot ignore is the people. People. And that's probably why, at least for today, for now, the United States is powerful because it's built on we the people. Mm -hmm. And the best way to bring down the, the United States is to take away the people and move the power to the government. Yeah. I, I guess. I think, I, I think, well, you've, you've made comments uh, along those lines as well. You know, if you lie to the people, you're just using them. Yeah. But if the people believe so. the lie, it's truth to them. Like George Costanza says, it's not a lie if you believe it. Mm-hmm. So to them, it's it's life or death. It's the survival of the nation. We have to overthrow the government for the nation to survive. Mm -hmm. Because I believe the lie, and it's it's a fascinating time that we live in, where that's the paradigm, that's the the, the dynamic that we're dealing with. So for at this point, it's not the majority, but it's a large percentage of people believing all different things. Mm -hmm. But then again, we have open. Uh, make sure we continue to have open dialogue. Uh, to try to understand everyone. Uh, but, you know, again, another thing about the foreign affairs, these are people that have an argument, but they bring to the table facts. Mm -hmm. They bring to the table scholarship. And so when you hear someone's opinion, it's based on facts or scholarship. Now, their opinion may be different, but at least they have some argument uh, to support uh, their conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is that when you don't have any argument, it's just belief, uh, then you can believe anything. Yeah. Uh, and that that's extremely dangerous. And so I think uh, that, I don't know, I, David, I think people should, uh, instead of listening to magazines, uh, listening to, to certain types of uh, uh, streaming uh, uh publications online uh they should start reading some of the some of the um, scholarly journals they should subscribe to foreign affairs and start reading these articles if they're very very interesting yes and before we close today i would like to say that we are subscribers to foreign affairs although we read this through an e-reader just makes it easier for the broadcast so we encourage everyone to subscribe to foreign affairs we'd like to thank them for curating a very great magazine that inspires lively discussion about issues. And of course, shout out to Orville Shell for this fantastic literature review. I believe, have we discussed this enough, do you think? <laughs> yep. The Foreign Affairs Journal is something that people should, uh, 
journals like the Foreign Affairs Journal, but the Foreign Affairs Journal for Foreign Affairs, you should start there. And there mm -hmm. may be others, but start just let's have some let's have some scholarly dialogue. Yeah, a, diver listen a diversity of opinions, but all of the opinions, even if they're differing, are valid. You don't just dismiss someone out of hand because their opinion is different than yours. Right. And of course, I was obviously, we saw on Wednesday, I was a little dismayed at some of the uh, saber rattling by the Chinese scholar, Yan Shuitong, in his article Becoming Strong, when he's talking about how we've given $400 billion to Iran, and we're doing this, and we're doing that, and sort of, he's doing chest puffing, and I think that Americans do the same thing. They're just unused to a foreign country, not even an adversary, our, one of our largest trading partners, you know? Uh, how often do I use something that helps me in my daily life that was made in China? You know, how often do I watch a movie or a television show that had funding from Tencent or some other Chinese company and say, that was a great message? You know, I think that they're involved in, in our culture and we're involved in their culture. And there's more points of understanding and likeness than there are points of difference. But I think that, you know, nation states, nationalism, we sort of, and of course, American ideals of exceptionalism, they get worried when another country sort of begins to have economic and military power that's uh, commensurate with ours. And it's, it's only natural to view them as an adversary or as an enemy. I wouldn't, I mean, but I think this week discussing China has been fascinating to look at, you know, Chinese direct foreign investment in America. That's something that's new. You know, for, for decades, it's been direct foreign investment, foreign direct investment in China from the U.S. Now it's the flows are going the other way. And then to look, what are Chinese scholars saying about the ascendancy of the Chinese state? And then finally to look, what does the party have in store? It's about to turn 100. There's three books on it. What does Orville Schell have to say, sort of summarizing these three books? And I think we've gotten a lot of different perspectives. And we can agree with some, disagree with others, but all of them are well-founded. That's right. And David, what would happen instead of looking at people as that have a different opinion, instead of looking them, at them as enemies, look at them as colleagues and partners with a different opinion mm -hmm. and coming together so that together we can make a better world? Yes. Can that happen? I believe so. Definitely. I believe so. I think that... Uh... I was reading I was reading Foreign Affairs this morning. <laughs> so one of the essays. It's here in this uh Fulbright one. It's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. The Fulbright paradox? Yes, I'm gonna find the quote real quick. Hold on. By Charles King, Race and the Road to a New American Internationalism. By Charles King. Um, I'll talk while you find it. Okay. Southern. Uh, all these articles. We should just review. All, all of them? Okay, I found it, yeah. Um, here we go. Go. It's just a quote that I think that it's a good one. So we're talking about having measured, reasoned debate, sort of taking someone at their word, sort of admitting that their scholarship, even though their viewpoint may be different, is valid. That from their perspective, the things they're saying are right, even though if you don't see it that way from your perspective. And how being enraged is not a great way to start an argument, because you're never going to see eye to eye. And so this is a quote 
from President Abraham Lincoln in his 1862 message to Congress. He said, We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. <laughs> Did you see that? It's quite a ways down. Yes, it's near the end. But yes, I think we must disenthrall ourselves. and then, So I think that we get enthralled in the mystique of American exceptionalism. And we want to dismiss the act actions of China out the gate as nefarious or evil. Or we see them engaging in trade practices and we say, they can't do that. And, they, and then you have to ask yourself, have we ever done anything like that? And the answer is yes. Over and over again for the last 50 to 70 years. And so it's like, so they're taking pages from our playbook, but they can't do that. And the, the fact of the matter is, they can and they are. And saying they can't do that is complaining. And like Jeff Bezos said, complaining is not a strategy. <laughs> you have to see the world as it is to sort of address challenges that are forthcoming. We must disenthrall ourselves if we're going to save the world. Um, we must disenthrall ourselves in order for us all to move forward. Yes, and I think, I think we as a community of the world should begin thinking in that direction of just disenthralling ourselves and understanding what other people are saying. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you believe what they, what they, their position. You don't have to believe what they say, but understand why they say what they're saying. Yes. And that'll make you more knowledgeable about why you believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fantastic. That's a fantastic point. And as we move forward, I think the thing about um, on China Week, my, my conclusion is China has had amazing economic growth over the past two decades. And, but that's not the whole story. There are you know, 2 billion people living there. And this article today showed that um, humanity throughout the world, regardless of the political system, regardless of the culture, a lot of times they're united around some similar ideas. And we'll see how those ideals play out in China in the coming decades. Just like we'll see how those ideas about humanity and the basic precepts of kindness and fairness and justice play out here in America as well. I think that the political system can only have so much influence on the arc of history. And we're all... We're living in this timeline and things are going to be very interesting, but I think that sort of taking a look at where China has been and where they have gone is a fascinating thing to do on a podcast, and I'm glad that we've done it this week. Of course, next week we'll have a different topic, but I think that we mm -hmm. know more coming out of this week than we did going into it. I think so, too. And actually, I would, from my, the, the general uh, uh, takeaway from me is I want to go back to what I said that I... I would love to for for people all across the world to begin to start not just seeing everyone as adversaries or enemies, but as we're all part of the part of the same system. We're all part of the world. Mm -hmm. See them as as colleagues and partners with different opinions and see if we can work together to move forward because we need to disenthrall ourselves as a as a world before we can move forward. Mm -hmm. And let's move forward as, as a world community. We have differences. 
We don't have to change our beliefs, but we have to work with those who have different beliefs and see if we can move forward. Mm-hmm. It's not easy because humans aren't made that way, but we have resilient where we can be that way. Yes, and I think that's a good place to end. So I will say... Thank you for tuning in to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. We are available Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 9 a.m. Mountain Time in the U.S. on YouTube. And we're available wherever you get your podcasts on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, and all of the other platforms. If you're watching this on YouTube, feel free to give us a subscribe and a like. And we'll talk to you in the next one. Is there anything that you'd like to say before we leave? Sons of Sequoia, you know, we're here talking And I want to urge everybody to keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. Bye.